0: Welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast. This is John Halsman, last one of the year, and wanted to end the year as we always do at the firm by voting for our Geostrategist of the Year. And the good news is that this time Vladimir Putin didn't win. Uh, Putin has won three times in the last 10 years, a man who certainly plays his very bad cards wickedly, but plays them well. But this time we have a much more positive choice, I'm delighted to say, if an unlikely one. And this is former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was voted in our firm, the geostrategist of the year. Now, why in the world should we pick a former Japanese Prime Minister to be the geostrategist of our present year? I think you can make an argument for Abe that involves both the past, the present, and the future. And I think he's actually a wonderful choice uh, by the firm. First of all, the past, In 2012 to 2020, Abe's long second stint as premier, he'd had a shorter stint of about a year earlier, he did a number of things that really realigned the Indo-Pacific, the crucial region of the world, where all the world's risk and all the world's reward is centered, and he really crucially led the anti-China coalition forming that went on that is so fundamental to the new Cold War between the United States, the West, and local Asian countries versus an adventurous China. Abe saw this early, and he kept on about it often. And in the end, his efforts to organize a coalition were crowned with success. And this is a hugely historically underrated achievement. And again, the idea that the Americans lined this up, which is the lazy thought here, really is belied by the facts on the ground, that it was Abe leader of great power of Japan, certainly knowing arch-rival, traditional rival China, that led the way. And the way Abe did this was by resurrecting an idea he'd had earlier on in his first in as prime minister in the 2000s. He resurrects in the second term between 2012 and 2020, the Quadrilateral Initiative, which is a nascent political mini NATO organization, which for all its many fine purposes, is a base designed to balance against an adventurist, revanchist China led by Xi Jinping. And if you see the Quad's members, they're exactly who you'd want to start this kind of nascent anti-Chinese coalition, this mini NATO. You have great power Japan. You have great power India with incredibly close ties, which are founded on uh, Abe's personal ties to uh, the Narendra Modi, the prime minister of India. Modi and Abe are very close personally, and this led the way for the Quad to come into being again in a more sustainable way this time. And you see great power India, great power Japan, superpower the United States, and Anglosphere member Australia all bonding together against Chinese uh, aggressions in the region and beginning to balance against Chinese adventurism. And this was Abe's brainchild bringing this together, bringing these groups together, these differing groups that have a common anti-China strategic tilt in the region and bringing them together. And this was really crowned with success this last year, which is why it makes sense to make Abe geostrategist of this year, because we finally have the quad at the leader's level, that this is now an ongoing yearly meeting at the leader's level, that this initiative is becoming institutionalized, routinized, and has become the leading political force balancing against China in the region. And it's the brainchild of Abe, who far from letting it go when he earlier tried to get this going in the 2000s, then with Chinese increased depredations, tries again in the second premiership of 2012 to 2020, and now is crowned with success, that there's this institution in place to balance against the Chinese. And this is a very big deal Indeed. And this is to Abe's great historical credit. But also during his premiership, he expanded the bounds of what you were allowed to talk about in Japanese strategic policy. And this is important because the Japanese have had a very quietest strategic policy since 1945, which has consisted of saying, look, the Americans wrote our constitution. It makes us pacifists, so we don't really have to care about the rest of the world. We've subcontracted our security concerns to the Americans. Well, as time has moved on and China has become a bigger and bigger threat, this no longer makes sense. This was a post-1945 solution that worked just fine for decades, but wasn't fit for purpose in the post-Cold War era. And you see Abe begin to change the terms of the discourse within Chinese strategic policy. He actually talks about spending real money on defense. Traditionally, Chinese, Japanese defense spending has been about 1% of GDP. And Abe began to say, look, we have to double this or we're not going to be serious about what goes on with next-door neighbor China. We can't just leave this to the Americans. He also, though, hugs the Americans as close to him as he can. Despite a lot of pressure, he allows the Americans to continue to have bases on Okinawa, which are vital if Taiwan is to be protected down the road, that America can quickly resupply and get to Taiwan, hard-pressed Taiwan if China attacks. And Abe ignores all criticism and talks about increasing defense spending, staying as close to the Americans as possible, but having more of an independent strategic policy, but one allied closely with America, and even talks about joining things like the Five Eyes, which is the ultimate kind of Anglosphere grouping. This is the premier intelligence grouping of the world. We've talked about it before. We're like baseball cards, little kids with baseball cards. Every Tuesday afternoon at Langley, everyone shares signals intelligence, meaning Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, and the US share open source intelligence, signals intelligence, in a fundamental way to look at. And now the Indo-Pacific. Well, Japan, under Abe, begins to talk about joining it. Uh, Japan has been an honorary member of the Anglosphere since the 19th century, when the Meiji Restoration, which started Japan's remarkable modernization program, was furthered by close ties to the British, and the British were seen as the example that the Genro of the time, the, Jap- the Japanese aristocrats who furthered this conservative revolution, wanted to follow. And so there have always been close ties between the Anglosphere and Japan since the mid-19th century when the Genro led the remarkable Meiji Restoration, which made Japan a great power in a blink of an eye in a generation. Made it the primary, the premier Asian power by nineteen hundred. And this was led by an attraction to the modernization efforts of the Industrial Revolution and the UK. This was seen as the model. They signed a defense treaty before World War I, and indeed Japan joined the UK in fighting in World War I on the side of the UK, the U.S., and others. So this is an old alliance, and Abe is saying, well, why don't we join Five Eyes? Well, if Japan were to join Five Eyes, this would be the Anglosphere plus Japan sharing intelligence directed at China. So in all these ways, Abe in the past has not only institutionalized this anti-China coalition, which he's led and has been his brainchild, he's fundamentally expanded the discourse in Japan about what can be talked about in defense terms after 60 years of a deep slumber that no longer made any sense. So that's what Abe's done in the past to be geostrategist of the year. But even in the present, he is still the primary power in Japanese politics, I remember when I first started teaching a class in Japanese history, being fascinated that everything in Japan was not what it seemed. The long-ruling, dominant liberal Democratic Party of the post-1945 era is neither liberal, nor democratic, nor a party. Rather, it's a tent of the center-right with a number of factions under the tent that jockey for power and negotiate internally as the ruling party. Abe, when he stepped down for ill health in 2020 as premier, still retained the key position as leader of the largest faction in the LDP. So in effect, he went from king to kingmaker, which is a much better and traditional senior role for senior Japanese statesmen. Abe hasn't left the scene as you would in America, gone and written his memoirs, played golf, made a lot of money, that's what ex-presidents do, instead worked on their presidential library, Instead, Abe is now the power behind the throne, the leading faction in the leading party in Japan. And an example of the power he still has is the elevation of Fumio Kishida to being the new prime minister. There was an internal battle for succession. And at the last minute, Abe threw his, the weight, the considerable heft of his faction behind Kishida. Now, this is interesting because Kishida, who had been foreign minister, under Abe, had worked closely and well with him, is seen as on the left wing of the LDP, whereas Abe is seen as on the right wing of the LDP. Kashida had talked about things in the leadership election, like, we need a new form of capitalism. We need to worry about inequality. We need to have good diplomatic relations with all our neighbors, sounding like a woolly leftist Wilsonian. Very much not the sort of thing Abe would like. But notice the difference. Abe gets behind Kishida, he becomes premier, and gone is any talk, any talk about changing the nature of capitalism. Instead, talk is about how to retain the old system, exactly what Abe would want. And even more importantly on foreign policy, Kishida becomes a newfound hawk who, guess what, is for doubling of Japanese defense spending. Long the brainchild of Abe. He's actually going to do what Abe had suggested and double Japanese defense spending, in theory, to about 2% of GDP, which is a significant rise out of nowhere. Makes Japan an immediate player, given the huge size of its economy in the East Asian area. Shows that Japan is intent and serious about countering China with the help of the United States. And Kushida becomes America's closest friend again. Well, the key question, is always in political risk, is why? What happened? Why did Kushida go in saying one thing as a candidate and come out the other as premier saying another? And the simple answer is he ran into two words, Shinzo Abe. Obviously, a deal was done behind the scenes, as is the norm for the LDP, which is Abe saying, look, kid... In return for my support for you being Premier, you're going to have to adopt policies my faction, which got you the job and can unmake you anytime it wants to, favors. Kishida, as a good LDP man, fell into line. Gone are his principles, and still on board are Abe's. So not only did Abe have a huge impact on the Quad and the past, the recent past, in East Asia, in the Indo-Pacific, he has an ongoing sense of power, a huge sense of power, as the kingmaker, head of the largest faction of the LDP, the maker of the prime minister, who suddenly adopts every single one of Abe's positions, be it in macroeconomics or foreign policy. Abe, far from being gone from the scene, far from playing golf, is very much now the power behind the throne, running Japanese foreign policy still, indirectly. Oddly enough, much as someone like Deng Xiaoping in China did, that this is part of the tradition, the Confucian tradition in Asia. The elders no longer hold formal positions, but are still very much running the show. And Abe has merely organically followed this long-standing Japanese cultural habit and done it very well. So far from being the past, Abe is very much the present. But now he has the added advantage, and this leads us to the last point, the future, of being able to say whatever the heck he wants and it not being government policy. He can always say, well, this is just my opinion, it's not the government. And Abe has given a number of speeches recently in East Asian forums, laying out some pretty strong markers for Japanese positions, which would have been unheard of before Abe came upon on the scene. He said straightforwardly, if Taiwan is under attack, the Japanese would consider this the matter of the gravest importance and would coordinate closely with their American allies. In essence, Abe just said that if Taiwan is attacked, the Japanese will at least, at a minimum, help America resupply Taiwan from Okinawa and may actually join the Americans with their new 2% spending and may actually fight with the Americans against China. Well, this caused no matter of hysteria in Beijing. This is the last thing they want. And this is something Abe has been positioning Japan to do for 10 years. Now he can say it as a private citizen. And when attacked, he blandly shrugs his shoulders and says, Look, this is my personal view. Of course, Behind this, the Chinese know, as I just explained, this guy, Mr. Abe, is the power behind the throne in Japan. He's not speaking as a private citizen. He is speaking as the kingmaker in Japan. But having this nebulous relationship, not being formally in power, has emboldened Abe to lay out this strategic marker over Taiwan. And also to say things like China's Adventurism is the single greatest problem in the region and must be addressed as quickly as possible. He's much more outspoken now that he's not premier. And this allows him the freedom to lay down semi-official strategic markers and then retreat if he's attacked rhetorically and say, hey, this is my opinion. Everybody knows that. It's no big deal. When of course it is a very big deal. The Chinese are absolutely right to see this as semi-official policy. So he's labeled in the future China as the aggressor. He said that Japan will come to the rescue of Taiwan along with the Americans. And he's seen to it that his his man in power, Fumio Kishida, the puppet that he's dangling, does as he told him. For all these reasons, Abe is very much running the show. And you see a 10-year process by which Abe has painstakingly led the anti-Chinese coalition quietly from the shadows behind the scenes, and it is now with the Quad come to full fruition. He's done this at a state level between India, Australia, the United States, and Japan with the Quad. He's done this at a rhetorical level, expanding the discourse in Japan to talk about increased defense spending for the first time, and even Japan having ever closer ties to the Anglosphere through the Five Eyes. He's done this through positioning Kishida, with the largest faction being Kingmaker, the present Japanese premier, and him adopting Abe's policy so they are ongoing. And he's done this in the future by laying out strategic markers directed at securing Taiwan and against China. Quite a day's work. And for this very impressive list of reasons, we decided that Shinzo Abe should be the geostrategist of the year. Well done. And on this note... Thank you so much for enjoying the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast this past year. I can't tell you how fun Substack has been for me. It has been the single greatest creative jolt I've had in a long time. The idea that I can talk to our community, do it directly without any of the mainstream media or editors as middlemen getting in my way. And we can have this ongoing conversation about how the world really works that I hope is a lot of fun, is provocative, and explains things in this dazzlingly interesting new era. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so now. Many, many of you have. have. We've had a tremendous boom in doing this. And next year, I would imagine that we will spend more time at the firm on Substack than any other thing, given this huge subscription increase we've had. I'm gratified, thrilled by it. It's my Christmas present. So thank you very much. For those of you who like this, please do subscribe. And at the end of the year, for those of you who have subscribed, At the end of the year, we now ask you to give. Substack is this wonderful platform devoted to liberty, freedom, creative expression, analytical ideas. And these are things desperately needed in our stultified mainstream media world. But it requires money, and we're not asking for much. I'm about to go have my coffee. And as you know, we're asking for $70 a year or $7 a month, which is the price of half a Starbucks a month. If you think you've enjoyed our podcast this year, our book serializations, which we will continue, the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast, the Patrick Henry podcast, and all the other things that we've done. Please do give $70 a year, $7 a month, and we will continue to do more and more and more together as our community continues to boom. And that has been my New Year's gift. And so please know how grateful I am to all of you for bothering to listen, for having fun with me as we explain the new world, and for making sense of something that seems chaotic. But frankly, beneath everything, there can be understanding. And I want to continue to have that together. And on that note, I wish you nothing but a joyous 2022. And we will continue doing our level best to make sense of it all. Happy, happy new year.